to another episode of Nerd Talk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee. And I'm David Lipton. Today, our guest is Kimberly Huber, professor of neuroscience at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. We will discuss protein synthesis and synaptic plasticity, translating basic research into clinically relevant therapeutics, and upcoming Halloween plans. All this coming up. We're here with Dr. Kimberly Heber, professor of neuroscience at UT Southwestern. Let's start with your background. Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in science? So I'm a Texan. I've uh, lived here almost all my life, Texas and Oklahoma. And in fact, um, my family's lived here for over three generations. I became interested in science. So I will say I'm not one of these people that knew they were going to be a scientist from the time they were, you know, a child. (laughs) I'd say, you know, I liked my science classes, but actually I was a history major when I first started uh, in college. I liked, I I think I had some really good history teachers in high school. I first took a biology class just as like a required class, and I really liked it. And I think part of it, too, is my dad is an electrical engineer, and he was always kind of, I remember sitting on his knee when I was like 10 years old and he's going over cubed roots or something with me, you know, mm-hmm. and he was always taking things apart in the house, you know, um, like back then it was like stereo amplifiers or whatever and showing me how they worked. And I have two brothers and he would do the same thing. And he was always kind of, he still is into science. And so, you know, I think I kind of liked that kind of tinkering engineering part. And I think that's kind of why I like being in the lab and I'm also an electrophysiologist, so I kind of like the tinkering part of it, engineering side. You know, I've always liked that as a kid. Didn't think of myself as a scientist, but I always kind of liked figuring how things work. Like, like I always liked puzzles and stuff like that. That's kind of how, I guess, I became drawn to science. And then, yeah, in college, I just really was fascinated by biology, and I actually had an interest in biological basis of behavior, so that's how I got into neuroscience. And was there a particular moment during the course of your early research career where you knew, okay, this is for me, like, you know, Mm -hmm. I definitely need to be a professor? You know, actually, I think, you know, I mentioned electrophysiology. I mean, I I knew I was interested in the brain and like, you know, because I thought it's just cool to understand how people think and what makes people different. But, you know, recording from live neurons, (laughs) that was like the most fascinating thing to me and, um, you know, right there in front of me. And I just loved it. And plus, I like the, you know, the kind of freedom and creativity that you can have. I think I didn't really like being told what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Even though obviously my thesis advisor told me what to do. But, you know, I think I liked having some level of autonomy, you know, and creativity and being able to kind of, and and of course, the ability to discover something, to know something that no one else in the world knows, you know, and so that to me was like all those things. So, so you actually stayed on to do your graduate work in Texas, although at a different place at University of Texas Health, I guess Health Science Center at Houston. Right. Uh-huh. Um, and and like you said, you were drawn to slice physiology, um, and there in that lab you were studying mechanisms synaptic plasticity. So at that time, did you pick that lab because of slice physiology? Was there undergraduate work you had done that that made you know that you were going to do this or? No, actually, so I could probably tell you probably never heard of my undergrad, and (laughs) 
they didn't really have you know research there. I did. I worked as a research technician in a lab for a couple of years mm-hmm. um, at Baylor College of Medicine, where I did some molecular biology and cell biology. But I, when I first started doing graduate student rotations, and I started to learn how to do um, electrophysiology and brain slices, and uh, you know, I just really took to that. And I think part of it is that you're seeing the experiment kind of unfold mm-hmm. in front of you. And also, I think really that's the essence of neuroscience. That's why I always tell our neuroscience graduate students, it is important to understand electrophysiology, even if you are studying, you know, transcriptional control in the uh-huh. brain or something. You know, this is how the neurons really work. And mm-hmm. so I think that was, to me, the essence of studying the brain. And so that's how I was just really drawn to mm-hmm. the slice physiology. Mm-hmm. And so you were working on mechanisms of synaptic plasticity, as I said. So at that time, what, what was the field like? What were some of the outstanding questions that you got a chance to work on? Yeah, well, at that time, I mean, it was all about LTP. And right. so you guys probably, um, I don't know if any of you guys work with Rob Malinka. <laughs> Close enough, uh, yeah. But, you know, at that time, it was Roger Nickel, Rob Malinka, and calcium-dependent protein kinases. And, and how is LTP maintained? That was the big question, which is still, you know, probably one of the biggest questions in neuroscience is how memory is maintained and how is LTP maintained. But at that time, it was protein kinases. And that's what, you know, I was working on. Paul Kelly is basically one of the people that discovered CAM kinase and the synapse. And so he was really interested in trying to, you know, study that that role in, in LTP maintenance. And, uh, and so I did, you know, some experiments related to that. And um, it sounds like something that you kept on pursuing. So you did your postdoc finally leaving Texas and going to Brown to work with uh, Mark Baer. That's right. He was at Brown at that time, I think. Yeah. Um, first yeah. of all, how was it leaving Texas? Was that your first time out of the state? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably well, vacation, but you know, I think that uh, it was good. You know, and, and everybody needs to get out where you you know you have to go get a new perspective. And I always tell graduate students you have to leave for a little while and then, then come back if you choose to. But no, it was uh, it was great. I loved being in the Northeast. And yeah, with Mark, I mean, I think really one of the reasons I wanted to work with Mark is I was studying plasticity, but he was studying plasticity in the context of kind of experience dependent synaptic modifications in the visual cortex and I actually started doing some experiments in visual cortex but then I think I ended up going back to the hippocampus and mostly because the plasticity in the visual cortex brain slices was just really weeny compared to the hippocampus (laughs) you know you know so I did do some work in visual cortex but I think I ended up you know going back to the hippocampus but I still was interested in plasticity and I think that that's kind of been a theme throughout my career is, is really interested in, you know, how the brain is plastic. And so, you know, with Mark, he was interested in metabotropic glutamate receptors at the time. He had had a nature paper showing that metabotropic glutamate receptor function changed with the critical period, which is, you know, the sensitive period for experience in the visual cortex. So he just put me on a project to try to find MGLUR dependent forms of plasticity in the cortex. And at this time, this was, was this not the dominant form of uh, plasticity that people were studying? They were studying? Yeah, so it was mostly NMDA. So mm-hmm. he and, you know, Rob Malinka had both characterized a nice NMDA dependent form of LTD, but he wanted to know what MGLURs were doing in the cortex. And so, you know, I did have some paper. I didn't find any role for MGLURs and plasticity in the cortex, even mm. though, of course, that's not the case now. Yeah. Um, many people have shown that. But I started doing work in the hippocampus, which is what I knew. And I just thought, you know, I'm just going to go there and start 
looking. And there had been some papers, mostly from Graham Colling Ridge's group, showing there was MGLUR-dependent LTP. And then he had a paper in LTD, actually, right around the time I was studying it. So then I just I started studying LTD mechanisms, uh, MGLUR-dependent LTD mechanisms. And that's where we made some important discoveries, I think, regarding mechanism. Mm-hmm. And so part of that, I think, was that you guys were looking at rapid dendritic protein synthesis in the context of this type of LTD. So can you tell us about that finding? Was it surprising at the time or not really given on Right. So at the time, what was really known about protein synthesis was really that it was involved in this late phase LTP, which really, you know, you could see it after about an hour and a half to two hours, you could start to see a protein synthesis dependent component, meaning that you would induce LTP. And then when you put on protein synthesis inhibitors, LTP would come back to baseline within about two hours. And so there was a paper actually by Bill Greenow at the time who showed that like in synaptonerazone preparations, MGLUR agonists could induce very rapid synthesis proteins within minutes. And so we started looking at that with this MGLUR-dependent LTD, and then we really could see that the protein synthesis inhibitors were having effects within 15 to 20 minutes after induction. So the implication is that MGLURs were stimulating synthesis rapidly, and this was affecting synaptic function within 15 to 20 minutes. And that was also the first example that protein synthesis was also required for synaptic weakening. So at the time, it was known that you needed new proteins to make synapses stronger, and this was kind of maybe counterintuitive that you actually needed make proteins to make a synapse weaker. And so I think, you know, maybe I would say the two kind of important findings for that were how rapid the synthesis was and then the synaptic weakening link. Mm -hmm. And how are you able to isolate um, that these effects were due to MGLUR signaling? Was it uh, using knockout mouse or what? We did both knockout mouse as well as pharmacology. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I just, um, for dendritic protein synthesis in general, is this actually coordinated within a synapse or is this like, you know, a very, a very local form that, you know, how does it contrast with other types of uh, mechanisms? Yeah, processing? so that's, you know, an interesting question. So probably I'd say the current working dogma, and I think this also applies to LTP as well, is that the proteins may be synthesized locally within a dendrite, but maybe not in a synapse-specific way. There's data from others, Julieta Frey and uh, uh, Richard Morris and also Sisumu Tanagawa showing that there's this idea called synaptic tagging hypothesis, which means that at one synapse you can induce either a late phase LTP or a late phase LTD that actually triggers the synthesis of the new proteins throughout the dendrite. But then depending on the activity of neighboring synapses, those can then come in and capture these newly synthesized proteins. So kind of the idea is that you have these kind of synthesis of what we call plasticity-related proteins or PRPs that can be selectively captured at individual synapses. So I know that's kind of a long-winded answer, but there's not really good evidence as far as I know that proteins are synthesized and are at the synapse and remain at that synapse and only affect that local synapse. The idea is that the proteins may be synthesized like in a, in a local dendritic area and then they're kind of captured or utilized by synapses, but that's also an activity-dependent process. You know, for example, in the context of LTD, we know AMPA receptor internalization is important, that you may have to trigger the AMPA receptor internalization to then capture these newly synthesized proteins to maintain the LTD. So it sounds like this protein synthesis is a little more general. It's it's like dendrite-specific, but then on top of that, you have another layer of regulation to actually... Right, exactly. Okay. 
And there was actually an interesting paper by Tanagawa that showed that really to get this kind of synaptic tagging or capture that it really was confined to a dendritic branch Mm -hmm. so that you couldn't really get the tagging or or capture on another dendritic branch. So it's kind of maybe local in the dendritic region. Is there evidence that um, along a dendritic branch, a lot of the synapses are from the same presynaptic cell so that if there is spreading to neighboring synapses, you're affecting a particular cell-cell connection? Oh, you know, that that's a good question. I really don't know. <laughs> I think they're probably, that is known, but I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the idea is that it, they not necessarily have to be from different inputs. The idea is that it, it may be a mechanism to give some associativity. So, you know, when you think about kind of heavy and plasticity is that you have one synapse that's strong, that's potentiated, and that if another synapse is coactive during or near that time and in a way that, you know, in a certain activity pattern that can capture, then you, you strengthen that synapse. So, you know, the capture is still activity dependent. In fact, if you're using like weak LTP inducing stimulation, that will, that will induce capture. So there's still a kind of heavy component. I don't think it's just any amount of activity will capture. You actually have to have kind of a weak LTP-inducing stimulation to capture, or LTD. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Sounds very nuanced. Okay, so you did a lot of work on that. Sounds like it's still an open area of investigation. But you actually ended up moving on to study um, a disease model called uh, for a disease called Fragile X Syndrome. So can you maybe describe for us what this disease was, and was the Bayer Lab already interested in it when you were working? Why did you pursue this? No, I mean, the reason we pursued it is actually from a basic science question side of things. So as I mentioned, we discovered this LTD that relied on rapid protein synthesis. It was induced by MGLUR stimulation, but at the time there really weren't any, or there was really only one protein that was known to be synthesized in response to MGLURs. And that was shown by Bill Greenow, and that was this Fragile X mineral retardation protein, which is the protein that's missing in Fragile X syndrome. So we were basically interested to know if FMRP was necessary for the LTD. So we got the mouse model, which is a knockout of the FMR1 gene, and then we started to study LTD in, in, in that model. And what did you find? So actually, in contrary to our hypothesis, we actually thought FMRP was going to be necessary for the LTD. We actually found that LTD was actually bigger in the in the FMR1 knockout. And that was before we really knew much about FMRP in terms of a molecular level. Right. So. so this was very interesting. So earlier you were referring to this counterintuitive idea of how you might need new protein synthesis for depressing the synapse and withdrawing yeah. AMPA. So can you elaborate on that in the context of this model? So what, what, did, what was what you guys came up with in terms of this? So at the time, did you guys think that FMRP could regulate new protein synthesis and could be a translation? Well, it was interesting. I mean, this is kind of how things kind of converge at the same time. So right around that time, I can't remember if we were trying to publish that result or around the time we're getting that result, but Steve Warren and also another group had data that FMRP, so it was known that it was an RNA binding protein, Mm -hmm. but when it bound RNAs, that it actually suppresses their translation. Mm -hmm. So in a way it fit because if it's a translational suppressor and we knew you needed translation for LTD, that when you lose a translational repressor, you think you might get enhanced, either enhanced translation or, or enhanced translation of these of these proteins required for LTD. So that really formed the model at that time. So it was really the convergence of our 
LTD data, as well as these other groups working on FMRP as a translational repressor, and that kind of uh, came together. And I think that's still the standing model of how FMRP is regulating LTD. Does FMRP at all regulate LTP? Maybe that would be a more intuitive thing. I would think increases in a lot of these proteins. Yeah, I actually wrote a grant to try to look at that, (laughs) but never, never did. I don't think Uh it was funded. Um, There have been people that have looked at it, and there are LTP deficits. Um, Actually, there's deficits, mostly in the neocortex that's been shown pretty broadly. In, In the hippocampus, there is one, but it's not... It's not striking. And, you know, we have some reasons actually why we think that may be um, YLTP because there may be some deficits in NMDA receptor function in Fragile X. FMRP, there is some other kind of protein synthesis dependent forms of plasticity that, that are abnormal in the FMR1 knockout. So it's not just LTD. There's like a protein synthesis dependent priming of LTP and then there's a protein synthesis dependent epileptiform bursting activity. That's a type of plasticity of intrinsic excitability that's also enhanced in Fragile X. I guess that implies that FMRP, since it has kind of a, it seems like a somewhat specific role, even though it's like, I, I don't know, for some reason, you often have this idea that these translational binders, the mRNA binding proteins that are regulating translation would have a very general, broad effect, but actually, are the targets very specific? Are there a lot of targets for this protein? Yeah, they are specific. So this is work from Jennifer Darnell and Robert Darnell at Rockefeller, and they've done some very nice work looking at least for the mRNAs that are direct mRNA, that, that are direct targets for fMRP, and there's about a thousand in the brain. Out of how many do you think? Well, yeah. Out of <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, sounds like a lot. Sounds like, <laughs> it does sound like a lot. And, yeah. But you're talking about the specificity. What's interesting is so like all of the NMDA receptor subunit mRNAs are targets of fMRP, but like none of the AMPA. So there is some selectivity there. Why that is actually is still a question. This is all FMRP biology. We could talk about the RNA binding, but there are specific RNA binding domains, but a lot of these RNAs don't necessarily, the, the, the consensus sequence that binds uh, FMRP has not really been well characterized, at least they're endogenous mRNAs. But it does have specificity. I mean, it also interacts with all of the RNAs for neuroligands, norexins, shanks, a lot of interesting synaptic proteins. But it's not all of the synaptic proteins. So, you know, and I think this actually speaks to what we know. Are there, there's numerous functions for fMRP at synapses, not just LTD. We've looked at others um, in, in my lab, and many other people have too. And I think that FMRP is probably going to have diverse functions at synapses, which a lot of this is going to depend on which mRNA targets it's regulating. You've also done some work on uh, MEF2 and uh, its right. uh, response in mediating synapse levels and response to activity. So can you describe how MEF2 and FMRP are coordinating to control the activity of synapses? Yeah, no, this is actually kind of an interesting story. I mean, people talk about how science happens. I mean, so there was a new assistant professor that came here, Chris Cowan, who was from Mike Greenberg's lab. And he had shown as a postdoc with Mike that MEF2, it's an activity-dependent transcription factor that when you activate it in neurons, it causes synapse elimination. And we had just published a paper showing that when you express FMRP in individual neurons, you would also get a synapse elimination. And, and just to put this in some context, we think part of the reasons we were motivated to do this is one of the phenotypes that's seen in patients with Fragile X syndrome, as well as the mouse models, there's an enhanced number of dendritic spines. So anyway, talking with Chris, you know, we're like, well, MEF2 causes synapse elimination, FMRP does. And so 
we thought, wouldn't that be interesting if they're involved in the same process? And so he basically gave us the constructs to activate MEF2 in neurons. And what we found is that, so if you, you can transfect neurons with an active MEF2, and that will cause synapse elimination, and it does that very nicely in a wild-type brain. But if you do that in, um, we did this all in sliced cultures from fragile X mice, it doesn't work. So, so we're still interested in setting this. I mean, our idea was that, you know, MEF2 is a transcription factor, activates these RNAs, and that fMRP is binding these mRNAs is important in regulating their translation necessary for the synapse elimination. And we're still working to test that model. We have been looking at some candidate genes that are fMRP targets. We're still trying to figure out if fMRP is really if it's if translation of targets are necessary for the synapse elimination or if is it really due to kind of an indirect downstream consequence of loss of fmrp and you know and these are important questions generally in any kind of disease model is that you know you can understand what the gene does in an acute way but that doesn't necessarily mean that loss of that specific function is going to be the mechanism you're basically seeing whether fmrp is just regulating the the protein levels based on its normal translational control of mRNAs versus could actually be directly interacting with degradation. But also on this disease level, I'm very interested in this. So you're saying you came at, to a lot of these fMRP questions from a basic science perspective. Do you have thoughts on in terms of the therapeutic meaning of your work? Um, like a lot of people talking about autism these days and fMRP is a common sure. cited yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I came into this from, you know, I was really working in basic neuroscience questions, but I, I say I'm very interested in disease. I think, of course, it gives your work bigger meaning, I think, and significance. But also, I think studying disease is really fascinating, and it can really tell us a lot about how the normal brain works. So clearly, the work with the metabotropic glutamate receptors showing there's an enhanced function of an MGLUR5-dependent process. I don't know if you know this, but there were several clinical trials with MGLUR5 blockers that uh, recently were reported to have failed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you know, we were really excited about that, and I think it's actually made the whole community, Fragile X community, and really probably autism community try to rethink, because I mean, we know in the mouse, if you block MLR5, it works really well, is the phenotypes that we study in the mouse. So it's made us kind of rethink these clinical trials, the translatability of the mouse to human. So one thing, actually, we've started a collaboration, and we just received a Fragile X Center grant from the NIH to actually collaborate with a group that's doing work in Fragile X patients. So I, I should say I collaborate with my husband, who's an expert in neocortical circuitry, and we've been studying the effects of uh, the, the, the neocortical circuit in Fragile X. And one of the things we know is that it's very hyper-excitable. And we think this is important for sensory hypersensitivity in, in individuals with Fragile X because most individuals have a hypersensitivity to sound and touch. And you can measure this as a sensory-evoked EEG. And so we're starting a collaboration at UT Southwestern here with a group that's John Sweeney, who's looking at sensory-evoked EEGs, and then we're actually collaborating with another group at UC Riverside, Khalil Razak, who's doing sensory-evoked EEGs in the mouse, and we're going to try to look at conservation of mechanism as well as 
you know, how the EEGs are changed and trying to do more sophisticated kind of power spectra analysis and things like that in the EEGs to see how well the mouse really translates to humans. I and mean, there was these clinical trials with MBLR5, but no one had showed that MBLR5 is dysfunctional or corrects any dysfunction in a fragile X person. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and so I think, yeah. um, you know, we can study the mouse and cure the mouse a hundred times, but if it's not going to work in the human, so we're we're really working to have a a mouse to human route to translate our our mechanistic findings in the mouse to people. So we're going to give the you know the individuals some drugs, most of them, you know FDA approved drugs that impact some of these mechanisms that we study in the mouse to try to see if we can you know cure brain function dysfunction in the mouse, and then if it also has any impact in the in the patients. So I'm very excited. Yeah. So could you give us a preview of your upcoming lecture at Stanford? So actually, I'm going to be talking about MGLAR5 and Fragile X. As I mentioned, there's really a, a really pronounced dysfunction of MGLAR5 in Fragile X. We've been trying to really understand why that is. And so we've been studying how MGLAR5 interacts with some of the its scaffolding proteins at synapses. And one of these is Homer that we've been studying. And, and we're interested in, in how MGLAR5 bound to its scaffold normally functions in the brain. But one of the reasons we've been focusing on this in Fragile X is that the synaptic scaffold is disrupted in Fragile X. And we think this has consequences for the signaling and localization of the receptor, as well as um, it actually causes a constitutive or agonist-independent activity of the receptor, which we think may be one of the reasons that some of these MGLR5 blockers can have very nice effects. And so we've been studying actually how FMRP regulates these scaffolds, and then in turn, when these scaffolds are disrupted, how this really leads to the dysfunction in Fragile X. And what I'll be talking about in my talk is mostly this, this cortical circuit hyperactivity. And we've looked at many other phenotypes as well, but I think Zimglar signaling, but I'll be focusing on the uh, excitability, the cortical circuit dysfunction by these uh, scaffolding proteins and, it, and how FMRP regulates that. Awesome. Interesting. So that will be exciting. Um, okay. All right. So on to the rapid fire. All right. <laughs> so usually we'd like to end with a few very quick questions. So if you can, we'll just read the question and you can think of the answer, whatever uh, okay. comes to the top of your head. All right. <laughs> um, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, and this is you specifically, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, I would say don't be so, uh, let's see, um, insecure. <laughs> I was That's insecure. A good one. Yeah. I didn't think I could do it. Yeah, but look at you and, now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you so can, yeah. you know? I mean, yeah. to be honest with you, that was my, I was like, oh, I could never do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, cool. You tell that to your graduate students ever? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, I think insecurity is good because it makes yeah. you work harder. You can do everything. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you'd have to be careful about what specific moment in time you went back to. <laughs> yourself that. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, um, next question. So the world of research is full of stories of accidental discoveries. Can you share a moment when you had one yourself? Have you ever had an accidental discovery? Or you can name one that you know of and that you really like. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing I, I would say is, you know, just start finding that there was this enhanced LTD in the fragile X mouse. I mean, we really thought it was going to be the opposite. We did all the experiments blind. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, yeah, definitely. It's reduced <laughs> and, and blinded. And uh, it wasn't, and it was complete opposite. 
So, I mean, that's, I don't know, that's just against our hypothesis. I mean, yeah, accidental discoveries. I mean, what I do know of, actually, is how LTD was induced. Uh, Serena Dudek told me the story that she was looking to get LTD in her slices, and she was doing one hertz stimulation, and she forgot and left her stimulator on, and she went out to get a cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) She came back 15 minutes later. (laughs) Wow, that was a big discovery. Stimulator off, and she got LTD, and then she's like, oh, you know, like, <laughs> slice or whatever. But then she did it again and again. So, yeah, that's an accidental discovery. Wow. Wow. That's, yeah. that's pretty awesome. In a dude story. Yeah. 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 She's, she's great. Um, okay. Go ahead. So then what is your favorite Mark Bear or Paul Kelly story? Oh, gosh. You know, one of my favorite stories, and I mean, I guess I keep going back to this, this LTD and Fragile X because I think it was um, – you know, an interesting discovery. But, you know, the first thing, so when, when we unblinded this result with the LTD and I thought it was going to be reduced and it was enhanced, I was kind of bummed. <laughs> yeah. God, this isn't what we thought, you know, I don't know. And Mark goes, you can cure Fragile X with MGLUR5 blockers. That was the first thing out of his head. No way. I mean, this is something that, you know, I wouldn't have thought of, you know, in 10 years probably. And, you know, he, that just kind of shows how he has a broad outlook, you know, and and then he went on to to follow up on that. But I think you can see that. So, yeah. Sorry, that's the only one I got off the top of my head. That's a great answer. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And then the last is just a fun one. So Halloween's coming up. Um, do you have uh, plans to dress up this this Halloween, or do you have a favorite costume from the past? Yeah, so I'm going to be actually at my daughter's haunted hall. They're doing a haunted hallway at her school, <laughs> and I'm one of the chaperones, so I'm going to be a witch, which <laughs> is personality, I'm sure the graduates will say. <laughs> I'll just, uh, yeah, so I'm going to be, I'm going to be a witch, which is pretty boring, but I've got all my glow-in-the-dark rings. <laughs> what, what is your daughter going to be? Does she know yet? She's going to be a demonic Powerpuff girl. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Very creative. She's 13. <laughs> so, uh, That's pretty good. That's she's going to yeah. be so cute. It's <laughs> like, Powerpuff she watches girl. the Powerpuff girl. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Huber. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you, and thanks for your questions and time. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when we'll talk to Dr. Robert Desimo, Director of the McGovern Institute and Professor of Brain and Cognitive Sciences at MIT. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and myself, Ada Yee. Thanks to Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley for composing and performing our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurightwest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk. I'm David Lipton.